0: We continue our sermon series in First Peter. Today we'll be in First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 25. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Cecil DeMille cast a British-born actor, H.B. Warner, as Jesus in the silent but famous film, King of Kings. And he put Warner, who was the lead actor, on quite a bit of lockdown because he wanted to ensure that the image of Christ and that picture in Warner was portrayed and kept up while the movie was being filmed. And so he instilled all kinds of measures to try to keep this in place. He had Warner sign an agreement that for the next five years, he wouldn't be part of a movie that would compromise his holy image in this movie, King of Kings. And he even went to behavioral stuff. So when Warner would show up on the set, he would be behind a black veil and He wouldn't be allowed to interact with the others on the set. And it went further, separated from cast members. Uh, He couldn't play cards while this movie was being filmed. Uh, He he couldn't go to ball games. Uh, He couldn't ride in a convertible. Not sure what that's about, but he couldn't ride in a convertible. Couldn't swim. And unfortunately, all of these Rules and all of these regulations uh, had almost the opposite effect. It didn't keep Warner, it didn't keep his holy image up. All the pressure of that put on him during the filming forced him back into his addiction to alcohol. That's oftentimes the, the stereotype that we have of holiness. A rigid, a restrictive, Behavior centered, that produces hypocrisy, maybe hiding, a double life. It begs the question then, what is holiness? What does it mean to be holy? And we're going to see in this passage that holiness is forward facing, it's upward facing, and it's outward facing. So let's begin with holiness being forward-facing. Look at the second half of verse 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter says holiness begins with a gaze into the future. That holiness begins with setting your hope on. That means to place your confidence in or to fix your eyes on the return of Christ and the grace that will be brought to you at the return of Christ. Now, what do we know to be true of the return of Christ and what will be at that time? Well, number one is that if you're in Christ, you'll receive a glorified body, a body that's no longer vulnerable to death, to decay, to disease, We also know that when Christ returns, that you will not be able to sin in thought, in word, in deed. We know that you will live in a world, we will live in a world at that point that is the new heavens, the new earth, free of uh, pandemics, free of war, free of injustice, oppression, racism, violence, that this will be true when Christ returns, and that's a, that's a reality that is 100% absolute beyond the shadow of a doubt. And that's not based on unfounded optimism. It's not wishful thinking, which is typically how we talk about hope as wishful thinking. It's none of that. No, it's certain that day is coming because it's based on something that's already happened, and that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So holiness is forward-facing. That future grace that will be brought to you when Jesus returns is fully present now, though it's not fully realized. That You are not right now what you will be when Jesus returns. Holiness is growing up into what you will be when Christ returns. I love how uh, Tim Keller puts it in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. And uh, he talks about this forward-facing vision uh, in the context of what it means to fall in love. Listen to what he says. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of the person God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you and it excites me. I want to be part of that. I want to partner with you and God in the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence and say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. The day is coming when you will stand before God, if you're in Christ, in spotless beauty and glory. And Peter says that's where holiness begins is having that forward-facing vision on that day. Now, the question becomes, what keeps us from having vision of that day? What keeps us from seeing that day? What keeps us from setting our hope on that day? Well, look at the beginning of verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. This describes the the means by which you, you can set your hope on that day. So, it also describes what keeps us from setting our hope on that day. Two phrases. The first one, preparing your minds for action. That literally means uh, girding up your loins. It's describing in the first century a person who would take their robe and pull it up and tuck it into their waist belt to free up their feet for the journey. Probably the closest thing that we have today of a phrase like that is roll up your sleeves. Roll up your sleeves. Let's get to work. The point is, is that this setting your hope fully on the return of Christ and the grace that will be brought to you takes mental resolve. It's just not something we naturally fall into. But then there's the second phrase, right? Being sober-minded, being sober-minded. Sobriety is the opposite of drunkenness, right? And drunkenness is being controlled by a substance. And if you drink enough, controlled by a substance that can blur your vision. I remember when I was a, a youth director in North Carolina, and we had a local news station call the church and say, hey, we're doing this segment on drunk driving with teenagers. Can we come, you know, do something at your church? I said, sure. So they came out, they had a couple golf carts, they had these special glasses, and they had a bunch of orange cones. And they set up this little course through the parking lot and then they put a pair of these glasses on a teenager that was supposed to simulate what your vision was like if you were driving drunk. And they put them behind the wheel of this golf cart. Um, now it was a serious matter, but it was actually pretty comical to watch these teenagers drive through this course. I mean, they were just blowing over the cones, missing turns. And I said, that can't be that hard. Let me try it. Put the glasses on me. And of course, I did the same thing. Just running over cones, missing turns, When you're controlled by something or someone other than Jesus Christ, then your vision is blurred. Your vision of Christ's return, your vision of the grace that he will bring when he returns is blurred. So if you're uh, if you're hyper-focused on your investment accounts or your bank accounts or in the midst of this season, the last three or four months have been pretty difficult. And if you've been so almost a panic attack focused on what you're losing or what you don't have, right, your, your vision of Christ's return gets blurred. Or if there is something in your life that you're obsessing over that is just out of control and spinning out of control and it's leaving you feeling powerless. That obsession, being controlled by whatever that is, can just blur your vision to the return of Christ, to the grace that he's bringing when he does return. Or if you're you're drinking too much, or you're taking too many pills, or you're binging on gaming, or binging on social media, or internet, whatever it may be, your vision gets blurred, right? To the return of Christ. It's like if you're hiking in the mountains, you've ever done this, and you're hiking in the mountains and a heavy fog sets in, and all you can see is the the ground in front of you. You're hiking along, and an hour later, the fog lifts, and suddenly you look out, and there's this beautiful, gorgeous, magnificent mountain peak that was there all along. But now you can see it. And so you're hiking with this glorious vision in front of you. You get some more energy and some joy, and then the fog settles back in. And once again, you can't see it, and all you can see is the ground in front of you. Peter's saying that if you're sober-minded, I mean spiritually speaking, if you're not being controlled by something or someone other than Christ, then the beauty of Christ's return is in full view. And the grace he's gonna bring is, is clear in front of you. But if you're not sober-minded, if you're spiritually drunk, controlled by something other than Christ, then the fog sets in and vision gets blurred and you get blinded. You get blinded to the reality of what's before you and what Christ will bring. So holiness begins with a forward-facing vision. But it's not just forward-facing. Holiness is also upward-facing. It's upward-facing. Look at verses 14 to 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Peter's quoting here from Leviticus. Four times in the book of Leviticus, God says to his people, calls them to be holy as he is holy. And one of those instances, in Leviticus 19, where God causes people to be holy as he is holy, is followed immediately by the next verse that says this, every one of you shall revere or honor his father and mother. Now, what's interesting in chapter one of 1 Peter is that when Peter quotes Leviticus, right before that, in verse 14, he says, as obedient children. And then in verse 17, he says, if you call on him his father. He's making this connection between holiness and father-child relationship. Right? That in the in the first century in Roman culture, the, the one thing that described or defined the relationship between father and child was honor and obedience. Peter's saying in a similar way, with your new birth, now you're a child of God. You're not trying to become a child, you're not trying to earn that. You already are a child of God. What should define your relationship with God is a relationship of honor and obedience, but ultimately of being conformed into the character of the Father. You know, when we talk about holiness, oftentimes it's talked about uh, as adherence to some almost abstract set of principles or rules. But holiness is obedience to God's commands, and God's commands are an expression of who he is. It's an expression of his character. And so holiness is about character transformation, not just behavior modification. It's about being transformed deeply into the character of your heavenly father. So think about the 10 commandments, right? The summary of God's commands. Those are, are set in the negative and we can get focused on the negative prescription. But each command is expressing part of God's character. So take, for example, you shall not murder. That describes God as a life giver. Or take the command, you shall not commit adultery. That describes God as faithful and steadfast. Or the command, you shall not steal. That's describing God as generous. Right? Or you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. That describes God. God as truthful, as truth. And holiness is upward-facing, becoming more like your heavenly father, becoming like your father, your character being transformed into his. Growing up, I I learned a lot from my dad, and it being Father's Day, I've reflected on it a bit. One of the things that I learned from my dad uh, was what it meant to be a hard worker, my, my dad is an incredibly hard worker. He has got a strong work ethic. And growing up, I learned that by what he said and by what he did. And there's a phrase my dad would tell me growing up over and over. I'll never forget it till the day I die. But he would always say, Keith, any job, large or small, do it right, or not at all. And he modeled that. And he would ask me my brother to help him around the house with jobs often, whether it was mowing the yard or whether it was doing a brake job on the car or whether it was changing the oil on the car. And I'll tell you, as a child, I wasn't always thrilled on a Saturday to spend three hours doing a brake job on the car. But I honored honored my dad. I obeyed my dad. And what I realize now is that the repetition and the rhythm of honoring and obeying my dad was transforming me. That my character was being transformed into my father's character. That I was becoming a hard worker like my dad was a hard worker. When God says, be holy as I'm holy, that is speaking about your character being transformed into the character of your heavenly Father. It's character transformation, not just behavior modification. And as your is transformed, what happens is you're, you're set apart from the world. And that's a, a theme that we see here in this passage, that you're set apart from the ways of the world. Peter says it in a number of places. Verse 14, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Or verse 18, knowing you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Right, from the feudal ways. Peter's setting up here two ways of living. There's the ways of the world, your former ways, and the ways of God. And they are very distinct, and they're different. And what's the mechanism that takes you from the ways of the world to the ways of God? It's that word ransom. He says, You've been ransomed from your former ways, from the ways of the world. That word ransom, it means to be bought out of slavery. It's a payment that buys you out of slavery. In the first century, it would have been someone that could buy a slave out of uh, slavery with gold or silver, some payment. Peter clearly here is not referring to physical slavery, he's referring to spiritual slavery. He says, there's not gold and silver that can buy you out of spiritual slavery. It's the precious blood of Christ. The blood of Christ is what purchases you and ransoms you out of spiritual slavery. Now, let me me try to illustrate this or give you an example. I want you to imagine that before you come to Christ, if you're in Christ, that before you trusted Christ, that you were uh, functionally, a slave to success, that success controlled you. Success dictated your schedule. Success dictated who you spent time with. Success was the matrix by which you made decisions at work. But then you came to trust in Jesus Christ. And what happens is when you trust in Christ, that Christ's blood is the ransom that purchases you out of that slavery from slavery to that success, to being a slave of Christ. So that now Christ determines your schedule. Christ determines who you hang out with, not success. That Christ is the matrix by which you make decisions at work. And so while you were a slave to success, you were willing to sacrifice your integrity at work by spinning the truth, maybe outright lying, twisting the numbers a bit, whatever it may be. And as a Slave of success, you were willing to treat people as objects to further your success. They were just pawns. But then you come to Christ and you realize, wow, ransomed from that, set free from that. Now I'm obedient to Christ, I love Christ, and now I'm not willing to sacrifice my integrity to chase success. Or or now I'm not willing to treat someone as an object, I, I actually care for them, even if it doesn't further my success. But when that happens, you realize there's a, there's a tension. That the character of God and his ways is in, tension with, is in tension or opposition with the character of the world. And so at work, you may have a boss that puts pressure on you to spin the truth, spin the numbers, make something look a little bit better. Or you might have a management team that creates a culture of just using people and abusing people and and making them objects to further the success of you or the company. And so you, you feel this tension. That's what Peter's talking about here. He's dealing with believers in the first century that were facing incredible opposition and tension because they were realizing the ways of the world are different than the ways of God. He says, you've been set apart. That's what the word holy means, to be set apart. Upward facing, being transformed into the character of your father. And as that happens, you're set apart from the ways of the world. Now, if I stopped here, this would allow potentially your view of holiness to get off the rails really quickly. That's why this last point is so critical. Because holiness, it's forward facing, yes. It's upward facing, yes. But third, and importantly, it is outward facing. It's outward facing. What do we mean by that? Look at, look at verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, that just simply means your submission to Christ. This is, That's, that's at, at conversion, right? Your conversion to Christ. For a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That new heart. From your rebirth, that you have. What do we learn here? That holiness is primarily an expression of love and not judgment. That holiness is an expression of love and not moral superiority. Now, there is a distinction. That doesn't go away between the ways of the world and the ways of God, or the character of the world and the character of God. You've been set apart. You've been ransomed. All that's still true, but that distinction is never meant to lead to moral superiority. It's never intended for you to feel, make you feel better than your neighbor or better than someone else. Think about Israel. When Israel was called out, God called them out. He set them apart not to be morally superior to the nations around them, but to love the nations for their character to be conformed to the character of their heavenly father and for the nations to see a picture of the character of God, how loving he is, how generous he is, how just he is, all of it, and be drawn to him. So the same is true that the expression of holiness is love. Holiness is not defined by being set apart from the world. Holiness is defined by being set apart in the world, to love the world, to reflect God's character to the world. The testimony of the church is love of neighbor, not moral superiority. Now, what empowers you to express your holiness in love and not judgment? or let me ask maybe a little bit more of a riveting question. What keeps your holiness from
1: reeking of moral superiority?
0: Look at verse 23. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God, Peter says, you didn't rebirth yourself. You didn't just work really hard to come up with this new set of values to live by. He says, you didn't wake up one day and say, you know what? I think I'm going to change my behavior and live differently. That's what we would call moralism or behavior modification. That's human striving. That's perishable seed. Peter says, no, you were born again of imperishable seed." By the eternal and powerful word of God, as verse 25 says, that your salvation is 100% a work of God. You can take credit for none of it. You can take credit for none of your salvation. God spoke this world into existence. God spoke your new life into existence. And there's no room for pride or moral superiority when it comes to holiness because the primary expression of holiness is love. In 1960, Adolf Eichmann was captured by Israeli undercover agents in his hideout in South America. Adolf Eichmann was one of the masterminds of the Holocaust. He was put on trial in Israel, and when he was put on trial, they brought in some former prisoners from the Holocaust camps that survived as witnesses. And one of these prisoners that was brought in, his name was Yehiel Dinur. And they brought him into the courtroom, and he was staring at Eichmann, who was behind a bulletproof shield. He was staring at the man who had murdered a number of his friends in the Holocaust. He was staring at the man who had orchestrated the death of millions of Jews. And as he, the victim, was staring at Eichmann, this brutal tyrant, the the courtroom fell silent. And this tension built in the courtroom, you know, what is going to happen next? And nobody could be prepared for what actually happened. Because Yahil Danur began shouting and sobbing as he fell to the ground. And the crowd in the the courtroom wondered, is this because of the hatred he was in his heart or the the evil that he saw in Eichmann's face or all the horrific memories that he had? Is this why he shouted and sobbed and fell to the ground? And the answer was none of that. He healed was later interviewed on 60 Minutes by Mike Wallace and asked about that moment. He said, what happened? And said, when I walked in, I already had envisioned seeing this evil personification of just evil when I looked into the face of Eichmann. And he said, what I saw instead was an ordinary man. And then he went on to say this. I sobbed and I fell to the floor because I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. Exactly like he. And then Mike Wallace, who was interviewing, turned to the camera and said this How was it possible for a man to act as Eichmann acted? Was he a monster? Was he a madman? Or was he perhaps something even more terrifying?
1: Was he normal? And then Yehiel Noor expressed this shocking conclusion. He said, "Eichmann is in all of us. You and I are fully capable of committing the heinous acts that Adolf Eichmann committed." And the only reason that we haven't is because of the grace of God.
0: That if you've trusted in Jesus Christ, you have been set apart. You have been ransomed. You have been set free from sin and evil. Your future is fixed. When Jesus returns, you will be perfectly holy. And until then, your character is being transformed into the character of your heavenly Father. And when you understand that that is a work of God and not because of your good performance or your good intentions, it produces a profound humility and it begs two questions. Number one, do people feel loved by your holiness? Or do they feel judged? And the second question, is the testimony of the church broadly, but is the testimony of Christ Church East, a local expression of the broader church, love of neighbor,
1: or moral superiority? Let's pray. Father,
0: We confess to you our moral superiority. We confess to you our judgment in our hearts. We recognize that you are a holy God and that you have called us to yourself, that you've ransomed us, rescued us from the slavery to the ways of the world, to the sin, the flesh, to evil. Father, you're changing us and transforming us into the character, into your character through the person and work of Christ. Father, would you humble us? Would people feel loved by our holiness, not judged? Would people feel loved by our holiness and not feel a moral superiority? That as we live humbly out of a character that's being transformed into the character of our heavenly father, that the world would see a picture, a beautiful picture of your character, your love, your justice, your compassion, your holiness, all of it. Father, help us to be a community that loves well. We pray this all in Jesus' name,
1: amen.